Franchise Fan Guys. Welcome to Franchise Fan Guys. I'm Tom Breifogel, joined with Andy Schmidt Skidmar, and today we have a very, a very special guest, Paul Salmon. Paul, do you want to introduce yourself? Well, I don't know how special I am, um, but I am Paul M. Salmon. Uh, middle initial is Michael. Um, I am the author of Future Noir, The Making of Blade Runner, and approximately 29 other books, as long as I'm here to toot my horn. And uh, like you fellas, I uh, was on the production side and uh, worked on probably close to 100 pictures over a 35 career, 35 year career in the business. That's something that for some reason seems to slip between the cracks whenever people engage me in conversations about the films we're going to talk about today. But yeah, that's basically me. But, you know, we're here to talk Blade Runner, and I was fortunate enough to be on site while they were filming it. Uh, Wrote, wrote extensively about it uh, prior to its release uh, in a number of publications and then followed up for, oh, I'd say 14 more years of writing about it for other uh, journals, magazines. This is pre-internet, of course. So I'd be on blogs and, you know, that type of thing if I had that avenue available to me. But then in 96, uh, Future Noir came out, and it has not gone out of print since. And since it is the Christmas season, go out and get a copy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a shameless self-promotion, but um, it's available as a hard copy on Amazon uh, and other you know, book-selling places. And also it's a uh, as an ebook on Kindle, and uh, you can get it in all kinds of formats. And it's now up to its third edition, so it's, it's literally not been out of print for 26 years which i find remarkable That's yeah great. And, it, and it is a great read it is really great oh thank you thank i you. just got it uh i just it just arrived uh from uh holiday shipping and amazon's a little slow but i just got just started reading it and uh it's awesome I have a copy too <laughs> yeah oh good <laughs> i'm glad i'm glad they sent you one uh, that's good yeah exactly <laughs> yeah fucking publishers can i i can say that right <laughs> yeah, yeah you can you can say this whatever you want. End, <laughs> yeah there's no standards and practices anymore Absolutely are there not. So. no i mean and if you okay. want to keep drinking that glass of vodka while we go that's fine <laughs> I, 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 this is actually this is actually my wife makes her own cold brew oh. and uh we were chatting before the show but i was up all night uh binging on uh, dark that german uh, science fiction time hopping uh, series that's on Netflix. And the uh, night before, I'd been watching uh, 1899, which is also, I'm not going to, no spoilers there because it's fresh, but boy, I recommend that one too. That one's a very. Did you make that, it through that, all three seasons of Dark in one night? I mean, that... uh, I, no, God, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but I did make it through an eight hour block on 1899 in like straight wow. through, starting at about 10. At evening and like you know staggering to bed like when the sun was coming up so yeah so that's wow. how much that that would intrigue me so that's a that's a fine effort wow you know, how far did you that. how far have you gotten on dark i uh, you, you know i know i pretty much know the premise i mean you know so uh i no spoilers again but uh i started watching the first season and then uh, i think we were talking <laughs> before the show as well about how you had watched the first season and then there's so much to watch you had kind of forgotten to get back to it the same with me i mean i'm just we're just we're we poor creatures we're just riddled with opportunity now right and you know mm -hmm. it's so difficult to to swim 
through the choices. Uh, it, believe me, when Blade Runner was released in 82, such was not the case. We were just in the real right. the first, the, the first post-boom blush of uh, Star Wars, because Star Wars was five years prior to mm. the release of you know uh, 2019 anyway. So it's a well, completely different world. Growing up a, a a superhero fan as a child in the in the late seventies and eighties, you know, like I was starved for like any snippet of news info that there might one day be a Spider Man movie, mm-hmm. you know, oh, or know. maybe one day there there you know there was talk about X Men being a movie, and now I can't watch all of it, and like ten year old Andy is constantly very upset with me for <laughs> for being like, eh, it's another Marvel movie, whatever. Yeah. Well, I feel like uh, your ten-year-old at this point. Yeah, I've I've just about ha- had it with the you know the Marvel you know MCU. I mean, yeah. please, it's it's this is the problem. You know, you your your uh, uh, effort here focuses on franchises, and it's, <laughs> I certainly am conflicted about them because um, aesthetically and intellectually, and just as someone who has been going to films and involved in music and literature his entire life uh, and on a daily ongoing basis, both professionally and personally, you know, the sequels always you kick into the law of diminishing returns. That's just what happens. And it's a natural phenomenon. The studios uh, start to imitate one another. And then when you have a sequel to what was originally uh, something fresh, and something exciting, it just slowly gets any of the creative juices milked out of it until there's nothing but a, a dry husk of a cash cow that they put a bullet through its head and, they, you know, <laughs> yeah. and then they rebrand it two or three years later. You know, I, and I was right in the middle of all that. I worked on Conan, uh, the, you know, uh, the Barbarian oh, and then right. Conan the yeah. Destroyer. I worked on Robocop 1 and Robocop 2. I worked on Star. Well, no, I didn't work on Starship Troopers one. Although I'm in it, I'm the guy who uh, my ten seconds of fame. I pushed the uh, cow into the uh, warrior bug. Oh, <laughs> oh <laughs> that's wow. me! That's, oh, that's me. awesome. Uh, yeah, I didn't know well, that. I wrote, that's cool. Yeah, I wrote the making of Starship Troopers. That was a licensed uh, thing um, for uh, the studio. Anyway, but I'm also wow. in Starship Troopers two. But you, uh, you can't see me. I'm at the very beginning. Uh, with Phil Tippett, that was his directorial debut, the, the picture of poor Phil that everyone hated. Um, <laughs> but uh, so anyway, so I definitely had firsthand experiences with, you know, sequels and franchises. And uh, on the other hand, when you look at something like Blade Runner and then BR 2049, which in my estimation is almost at the same level of achievement and quality as the first one. Uh, or you look at something like The Godfather 2, um, and there are, you know, of course, there are a few other uh, examples, but they're thin on the ground. Yeah. So I'm glad we're talking about, you know, uh, a franchise which so far, with one exception, at least in my estimation, is doing pretty well. And that's the Blade Runner universe. Yeah. Well, uh, when I initially reached out to you about uh, about coming on the show, uh, and then you listened to our first two episodes, which at this point, those are the only ones that have been released, um, and our 2049 episode should be coming out next, or, or actually later today as we're recording this, um, uh, you noticed that there were some, uh, there were some inaccuracies, uh, and you called us out over the carpet for it, and I think our, our listeners would want to know. Kindly. Yeah, kindly. <laughs> you did, very, you did very, very kindly. Very yes. gently. 
<laughs> but if you'd like to go into that, because I think some of them are, are were really interesting um, because well, we why, were kind yeah, of guessing why, on some of them. Sure. Go ahead. Well, I think it, it might be more fruitful if you were to uh, just, uh, just kickstart me with call like, out what they were. Yeah, sure. Like, yeah. Or just, you know, give me the gist of them as I laid them out. Well, the first one was I'll a just respond. Yeah, the first one was uh, about we had talked about the potential influence of anime or or some of the Japanese stuff, and then you you had you had um, uh, you had some insights into that, which which I thought were really interesting. So if you don't, well, you know, context is everything, and um, even though the first anime I saw, um, I grew, my father was in naval naval counterintelligence, and I grew up in Asia. Uh, in the Philippines and in Japan in the oh. 1950s and 1960s. So uh, I, of course, was very young when I was in um, Yokosuka uh, in Japan, near Yokohama, the naval station. In fact, we were one of the first waves of, you know, the, the colonialists who came in after that nation had been shattered by the nuclear, you know, uh, attacks. And, uh, I do remember that they had television and that even then uh, it was innovative. Uh, however, uh, back in the 50s and the 60s, uh, Made in Japan was a pejorative. It was a label that you automatically associated with something cheap that fell apart in your hands. And now, of course, it's the exact opposite. They're the ones who do all the high-end electronics and fashion and so forth and so on. But um, I do remember seeing things like Simba, the White Lion, and, you know, Gigantor, which were all, you know, retitled, Speed Racer, all were all retitled, um, Americanized, uh, dubbed versions of then current Japanese anime. So I was familiar with anime early on. And as I got more into the film industry, um, I kept up contacts in Japan. And in fact, in the late 80s, I was a uh, co-producer of approximately... I can't remember now. It was four or five different series that we did for Japanese TV. And one of them was called Hello with an exclamation point movies. And that was an hour long entertainment program uh, that only focused on American product. And our uh, uh, sponsors were Sony and Shiseido. And uh, we uh, were on NHK. So, you know, I have a lot of history with Japan. So I'm very familiar with how that came over into the USA in the 80s. You know, Carl Maycheck was one of the people who really was one of the pioneers. Oh, of getting, Robotech. Yeah, yeah exactly. No. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and Carl was out there, you know, uh, uh, he had a high profile in terms of, you know, introducing a lot of American fans to Japanese anime. And uh, anyway, um, though, in the early 80s, that was really sort of a, a kind of an underground thing. There were people who knew about it or people who had been exposed to it when they were over there. But in terms of Blade Runner, Ridley Scott, no. You know, um, Hampton Fancher, no. These, you know, Ridley Scott, <clears throat> I asked him about it once years later. And he said he was vaguely aware, you know, vaguely aware of it in the background because his um, whole career has been graphically oriented whether it's been in film television or on you know the page and so he of course was aware of what was going on culturally in japan but not in terms of the subcultures really and hampton fancher is a high-end literary guy i mean you know blade runner is named after william Bur burroughs you know adaptation of a of a book by alan norse who 
This is such a complicated story. But anyway, <laughs> the, the original Blade Runner is named after William Burroughs' book. And uh, so, you know, Hampton was more inclined to be reading high-end things. And uh, so, no, they, they weren't familiar with it at all. Sid Mead, the guy who was one of the primary design influences on 2019, which is how I'll refer to it and everyone does now anyway, um, the first Blade Runner, um, was uh, definitely aware of anime because Sid was a fan and Sid and I were, were, were friends and tight friends. And uh, I didn't get to see him as often as I would like because I was still in the industry. He was always busy. I lived in Altadena when we were in Los Angeles, which is in the foothills right above Pasadena. And Sid was in Pasadena. So when we get a chance, we would hang out. We'd go out to, to eat or I'd go to his home and had, in fact, I saw Sid literally maybe four months before he passed and we had lunch, he and I and Roger, his uh, manager. Wow. And uh, that was, uh, that was a moment. And, uh, you know, but anyway, Sid, Sid was well aware of it because Sid started reading science fiction when he was a kid and his, one of his biggest thrills was meeting Robert Heinlein and Ginny Heinlein, Virginia Heinlein, who I'd met also. And uh, we used to just be a couple of, you know, like little fanboys talking about stuff. But now the question is, did anime influence Blade Runner? Uh, uh no, it's the other way around, completely the other way around. Because although as all films are, uh, particularly as you people know, and by you people, I'm talking about the people involved with the podcast here. Um, I don't want the PC police jumping all over me. That's <laughs> what I said. You can't say anything anymore, can you? It's like, we need another George Carlin to come up and say what's, you know, to just make fun of this whole thing. Um, I, I, I'm really a, 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 a violently anti-censorship kind of person, even if it gets into areas which are problematic um, because there is such a thing as free expression. And if you believe in free expression, then you do. And if you don't, you don't. But I happen to do it. Even was it Voltaire that said, uh, I may disagree with you, but I will fight to the death for your right to say it, to paraphrase. That's my opinion. So to get back to Sid Mead in a circular way, as you can, as I, I, I sent Andy a, a, an email that said, can't wait to go overextend your 45 minute podcast. <laughs> Uh, notorious for this, so I will try to keep my answers as short as possible. So anyway, Sid um, knew about it, but he did not incorporate any of that type of design aesthetic or uh, stylistics into the original Blade Runner. Sid already had a very well-established um, look, and uh, his was very uh, uh, gleaming, almost, um, I don't want to say cliched, but, but because it wasn't, but it was a very utopian science fiction world that he created. All of his materials were sleek. People were well-fed, uh, you know, well-dressed. Um, their accoutrements, whether they be automobiles or, you know, flying cars or whatever, were always very beautiful. And so that's the way he designed everything. So that's what came out in Blade Runner. And then Ridley Scott put the grunge on top of it. So, uh, you know, to say that anime had any influence on Blade Runner is incorrect. In fact, it's the other way around. It's Ghost in the Shell and many, many, many other animes afterwards freely have admitted they went to the original well and their 
fountain of inspiration has been Blade Runner. And, uh, you know, for 40 years, that movie is still being ripped off, you know, visually yeah. and stylistically. And uh, it's just hilarious. Um, in the 80s, you could really tell what the ripoffs were because you'd always see fans in a room rotating very slowly. And there was always <laughs> there was always a very heavily smoked atmosphere. You know, they, I think they still used B smoke back then, which was not a nice thing to be on sitting in Hill. It wasn't <laughs> on Blade Runner either. I can tell you, we were all cat gasping and choking and wiping away tears. Poor, I mean, Ridley was right in the middle of all of that. So no, um, that is uh, something that perhaps uh, is a misunderstanding. But if you have to encapsulate it. Anime never influenced Blade Runner, but anime certainly was influenced by Blade Runner. By Blade so that's Runner. the short, short version. All right. Um, <laughs> you you also had some choice words about the substitution of father for fucker in the uh, oh yeah. The final cut. I was very upset. Yeah, I was very upset with that because um, you know that. Well, and again, you know, it's Ridley's movie. I mean, and oh, incidentally, you know. Um, as we all know that, you know, the auteur theory, which is uh, that the French came up with, in, you know, uh, the famous film journals back in the 50s and that Truffaut and Godard and all those people ascribed to that uh, certain film directors had such a strong personality that you could see that through line through all of their work. And that's where the auteur theory came into being, that the director was the overriding sensibility artistically on any motion picture. Uh, frankly, a lot of that is just horseshit. Um, I, 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 I bought into that when it was first emerging. Uh, I used to read Pauline Kael and Andrew Saris and Manny Farber and all of the high-end critics and even met most of the ones I was just mentioning. And um, then when I got into production myself, I realized, you know, it's, it's a team effort. It's like, hey, kids, let's put on a show. And there are instances, uh, particularly in indie and low-budget or micro-budget uh, films and television shows or streaming series um, where you do have the imprint of a writer and or a director. That's the person, or showrunners as we call them now. But um, in terms of major motion pictures, not so much. And the converse of that is that Blade Runner at heart is a Ridley Scott film. I mean, Ridley is in every single one of those frames. I mean, he was so hands-on in that picture. People don't notice that he gets a producer's credit as well. And, you know, Ridley acted as a producer. I mean, Michael Dealey was the, the, the producer and the man who had Ridley's back at every moment when the waters got exceedingly bloody and rough. But Ridley also had uh, decades of experience at that point, uh, shooting commercials, running his own commercial company, thousands and thousands of clients. The man knew what he was doing. And he came in there with many agendas. And Ridley definitely was the guiding force behind that motion picture. So um, when he shot the film where Roy Batty finally meets God, when he finally, you know, gets into Tyrell's bedroom, which is, a, you know, an intimate place to invade. Um, that's what always interested me, uh, where you're most vulnerable. It's either that or the bathroom, really. Um, the moment when he steps forward and I, he says, I want more life fucker, which was in all of the theatrical versions up until the final cut. And then all of a sudden we hear, I want more life father. 
father was TV coverage. They shot that on the day as a substitute to get around the censorship that was then prevalent on broadcast standards. I mean, if you were going to show this on CBS or something like that, you had to pull out that you know, curse word and put in something that was audience friendly. So that's all that was. That was coverage. That was TV coverage. But I think for whatever reason, Ridley decided to kind of push the thumb even heavier on the creation scale there and uh, take away that street edge and that punk and that, you know, threatening aspect of the word fucker, which is why I like it. Because once again, you're reminded how dangerous Roy can be. Mm. You know, he's a combat model, right? Which people seem to forget. Uh, but he, he's not just uh, a random killer. He's been trained by this corporation to kill. And he's one of the ultimate killers. And so that was a moment where it all kind of coalesced his anger, his rage at his, at his situation, the fact that this man was being so arrogant with him. The, you know, all of that is lost when he says father. It's almost like he, you expect him to bend the knee and like, you know, bow his head and, you know, kiss the ring or something. And I just went, oh, no. <laughs> and I asked, <laughs> I asked Ridley about that not too long afterwards. And he laughed and he says, I don't know. I must be getting older. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I thought Ridley is very funny. Ridley has that's one of the things he's known for. He can be very unfunny as well, but he's uh, he's got a great sense of humor. Nobody you can, as as, as Hampton has said many times, uh, no one you can laugh with very few people as loudly and as, as well as you can with Ridley Scott. But I'm sorry that they did that. That's that's the story behind that. So when you hear that father line, you know, it started as something 40 years ago is just kind of a dodge. And now it's like, you know, embedded into what he considers to be the version of the film that was supposed to be released originally. And I take issue with that. I like that street edge to it. There's there's yeah. there's more levels to it. Yeah. It's just a little too blatant with the analogy with. Father. Yeah, it's a, for me, it feels it's like a little too it's too on the nose. You know, I think I mean, all exactly. of all of that yeah. context of the, the father figure and the creation myths and all that sort of stuff. It's it's all there. Uh, and that. And that yeah. One over and far. over. And, and it and yeah. the, the the original line has so much more oomph behind it. Like there's so much, much. more to sink your teeth into. <laughs> yeah, punch. yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, you convinced me. <laughs> I was ambivalent about it, but now you completely convinced me. I'm I'm on the oh. fucker side. We'll yeah. we'll we'll let Ridley know to to make the change for the for the new final. Yes, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure he'll return all our calls on that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, the film's production floor you said was twenty eight to twenty nine million dollars. So that was information yeah. we just couldn't find online. So that was the the cost. Yeah, of I think it's. It. I actually think. I, if I'm not, I didn't, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, um, but uh, I'm going to anyway. Uh, the uh, production floor was approximately 28 to 29 million. Uh, it crept up um, as these things always do. Uh, and uh, they originally had, well, briefly for people who don't know, um, there's this game that's played between producers and directors and whoever the financing entity is. In this case, in the classic studio model, you go to a studio with a breakdown and a budget and you say, this is how much it's going to cost us. And usually with a contingency build in of 10 to 15 percent, you're pretty well within the ballpark. But the studio goes, yeah, that's a little high. Can't you take this out? Can't you take that out? Can't you do not this and not do that? And you kind of make these compromises because you want to get your film done. 
And then by the end of the day, when the movie comes out, well, guess what? It's back up to write about where it originally was budgeted out to. Now, in Blade Runner's case, it it did go over by about mm, two million. And uh, what essentially happened was that Ridley got mired in a whole lot of technical and inter-tribal uh, warfare pools of quicksand. And also he was, he was, you know, that, that beautiful, those shots take a long time to set up back then. And he was doing a lot of them with single camera setups, not all of them, but a lot of them. And so to get the rain bars going, the smoke pots, to get your lighting set up, to get your extras assembled, to get all your props, yeah, blah, 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 blah. You'd sit around for hours waiting for the camera to roll. Sometimes you'd wait all day and the sun would be coming up and they'd get one shot and that day was over. So, you know, that's the reason why it went over. And um, the 28 and $29 million was probably, I think in Ridley's and Michael's mind, they thought it was going to be anywhere between 23 and 25. I mean, maybe they didn't tell the studio that, but I think that that's what they were thinking. So really, I mean, it, it, it basically was not all that different from any other major film that's one of the secrets on production you know that that these things always go over budget there are very few films that you know come in under jim cameron who i i, I have met um told me that the only movie that he ever made that came in on time and under budget was the first terminator and he took hmm. he took pride in telling me that everything else was the exact opposite so you know <laughs> Um, he want you know they want to do it right. You, they become obsessed. The good ones become obsessed or obsessives, yeah. and uh, the Ridley certainly was on that one. And I think that figure actually is in the third edition of Future Noir: The Making of Blade Runner. Ring mm. the promotional bell. We should have a drinking game every time <laughs> I bring that title up. <laughs> well, that's it for this segment of the Paul M. Salmon interview. Come back next week where we'll jump back in with more questions. If you're a Patreon subscriber, stick around for an extended episode. Franchise fan guys.